tuned in to CGSW 90.9 FM. My name is Sean Collins, and I'm the host of the next hour of programming. We've got a really interesting show this month in which we explore a couple of non-traditional approaches to limiting the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. We hear often about a straight carbon tax or a cap and trade system, and we've got two really nuanced approaches that are more revenue neutral and leverage a lot of the desire for people to have either smaller government or more market-driven approaches to how we tackle climate change. We're also going to finish the show with a long-form interview with the Alberta Voices Project, which is a group of youth who are looking to provide a nuanced approach and a nuanced conversation to land ownership, land development, and fracking in Alberta. As always, you can listen to previous episodes by visiting bit.ly slash energyvoices or by searching for Energy Voices in iTunes. Energy Voices is brought to you by Bullfrog Power, and you can learn more about their Bullfrog Power student life opportunity by visiting bullfrogpower.ca slash student life. Without further ado, here's Mark Cameron from Clean Prosperity Canada. Welcome back to Energy Voices. My name is Sean Collins, and our next segment is going to invite Mark Cameron, the Executive Director for Canadians for Clean Prosperity. Mark is a former policy advisor in the Harper government and is focused around new and innovative ways that we can tackle uh, carbon pricing and how we create carbon or revenue neutral carbon pricing uh, in Canada, as well as a variety of other issues related to clean prosperity. So welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks very much, Sean. Good to be here. So just to kick things off, uh, we always like to get a bit of background on on who you are and what organization you represent and, and what are your major initiatives. So uh, maybe walk us through, first off, who, who's Mark Cameron, and then we'll tackle who's Clean Prosperity. Yeah. Well, my background, I've worked uh, primarily in, in and around government for the last 15 years or so, worked uh, for Prime Minister Stephen Harper for two years in opposition, three years in government as his director of policy and research. Uh, I've, I've also worked for an environmental consulting firm for Ontario Power Generation, uh, and most recently with a, a national consulting firm heading their energy practice. Okay, awesome. And, and what led you to join Canadians for Clean Prosperity? What was it about this this company and, or this organization uh, and this role that, it, that interested you? Well, I really thought it was an opportunity to get involved again in the public policy debate on a really important issue on how we tackle uh, the issues of, of pollution and particularly uh, climate change, uh, but looking using market principles and, and uh, you know realistic and pragmatic solutions to to get to answers. And so, what are those realistic and pragmatic solutions? What what is Canadians for Clean Prosperity? What are you advocating for? And what would your ideal situation be related to pricing and, and pollution? In in general, our principle is the polluter pays model. We think that the externality should be included in the cost. Of, of whatever kind of, of product or service is being sold. Mm-hmm. And so pricing should really reflect true cost accounting, what the, what the cost is to the environment, as well as the, the actual cost of production of the product. Okay. And you know, that applies, obviously, in the debate around carbon, but it applies in a whole bunch of other fields as well. Mm-hmm. And, and so how would you, so taking that, that concept, how is that different than other environmental organizations that are also advocating for a price on carbon? Sure. I think one thing that is uh, distinct about Canadians for Clean Prosperity is that we believe that the price signal 
should be about influencing behavior and not about increasing the size of government. Okay. Uh, we think that you can actually get what they call a double dividend if you have a robust price signal, but then th- any monies that are raised are returned to the taxpayers as as tax cuts. Okay. And, and so I think that's a, a key component. So maybe walk us through a little bit more that component of, of sort of taxing the polluter, but then returning that money to the taxpayer. Give us a bit more of a walkthrough of what that would look like under the ideal world for Canadians for clean prosperity. Well, one thing to keep in mind is that it, pollution pricing or carbon pricing is really more of a user fee than a, than a traditional tax because it's something that as an individual or as a company, you have a choice as to how much uh, uh, you're going to pollute, how much you're going to emit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can control your own behavior. You can take actions to reduce your your carbon footprint or reduce your your uh, your pollution profile, uh, and uh, so we think that that user fee should essentially be offset against other against other taxes. So rather than taxing income and savings and investment, things that you want more of, we should be we should be taxing or putting a price on pollution and carbon mm-hmm. emissions and things that we want less of. Yeah. So in in a theoretical world where everybody had the exact same carbon intensity, this would be totally revenue neutral for them. It would be our, our ideal world. It would be a completely revenue neutral policy. Yeah. But in reality, people that consume disproportionately large amounts of carbon in their day to day lives would be paying more money than someone who has almost no carbon exposure. Sure, there there are obviously differences at an individual level or at a company level. But... Yeah, and so these seems like the, this conversation and your sort of focus seems like ideals that would appeal to traditionally conservative voters, where it's that concept that it's not making government bigger. It's really just focused around sort of influencing behavior and using market factors to influence behaviors. Do you find that you have support or opposition from conservative voters? Well, I think, you know, really the most prominent example of uh, a revenue neutral carbon tax that's been brought in anywhere is in British Columbia, where it was brought in by Gordon Campbell, who's Although his party label is liberal, it's a it's a more conservative leaning coalition in in BC, yeah. and uh, they brought it in as a center right government, and were successful in bringing it in uh, and and keeping it in place in that environment. So I think, uh, and there certainly are people not only in Canada but the United States and elsewhere mm-hmm. on the traditional right who support the idea of a revenue neutral carbon tax, who wouldn't necessarily support other kinds of measures on climate. Yeah, and and so is. The, the question here is, is a lot of your work, is it focused around still advocating that there needs to be a carbon tax? Are you seeing that uh, governments in general feel like this is an inevitability? Sort of give us your sense of where you see the conversation around carbon pricing, carbon tax, cap and trade systems. Where does that fit in uh, across Canada right now? Sure. You, you mentioned that we have a, an effective one in British Columbia, but maybe give us your thoughts on where we're at sort of on the ground in other jurisdictions. Sure. Well, I think, I think generally there's still a debate on on the right and certainly in the United States it's a very uh, lively debate or in Australia it's a very lively debate whether we need carbon pricing or carbon taxes of any kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in Canada, there really is momentum in that you now have BC and Quebec that have active carbon pricing systems. Alberta has ESKER, which has recently been intensified. So you have a, a stronger carbon pricing system at the industrial level in Alberta. 
and Ontario has announced they're going to join the cap-and-trade system along with Quebec and California. So you will then have 75% of the population, 80% plus of the emissions in Canada covered by one or other pricing system. Yeah. So it really is becoming you know, pretty much a consensus across the board in Canada. Yeah. Uh, and, and going back to, um, you, you said that sort of the BC model is the one that sort of most closely aligns with some of the advocacy aims of Canadians for Clean Prosperity. Um, have there been any sort of unintended consequences or un- unintended impacts on their economy, either positive or negative? Sure. I think, I think overall, it's been quite positive. Uh, yep. BC, in the first five years of implementation of the carbon tax, saw fuel use fall by about 19%, and yet it continued to have one of the highest economic growth rates in Canada. Their economy was not negatively impacted. Uh, arguably, there was a slight uh, improvement in economic performance because the tax cuts offset the the, yeah. the carbon pricing. Um, there, there, there are sectors that it would say that they were unfairly impacted. The cement sector was uh, says that they were that they were affected by imports from other jurisdictions. Agriculture felt that they were unfairly singled out. So there, there you know, there, there were yeah. some some sectoral impacts, but overall, the result has been very positive for the BC economy. That uh, that example of the cement sector being influenced by imports. Uh, it brings up a term that's not often discussed, which is carbon leakage. So rather than me explain it, do you want to take a crack at just sort of explaining to our sure. listeners what the concept of carbon leakage is? Yeah, the, the idea of carbon leakage is that if one jurisdiction has a robust uh, carbon uh, carbon pricing policy or other kinds of climate policies that impose costs on companies, that business will then go offshore to other jurisdictions or competitors from other jurisdictions will step in uh, and, and sell their products into that market where they don't face those costs. Mm-hmm. So, and, and how do you prevent that? Is there, are there tools or mechanisms to prevent that? There, there are different kinds of tools. In, in some of the cap-and-trade systems, there are free allocations of credits to companies that are impacted by, uh, by carbon leakage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one way of dealing with it. We would prefer, uh, I think, to keep the, the price level and the tax level fairly uniform, but then have the, the government take uh, what are called border measures, so, so either a rebate or a, or a tariff or something at the border to, uh, you know, to offset that difference in, in carbon policy. Yeah, because until there's a truly global price on carbon or some sort of ag- agreement, uh, the whole concept of outsourced emissions is something that will still play a significant role. And there's an active incentive for jurisdictions to have absolutely no uh, carbon pricing so that they can continue to manufacture, yeah. and especially in intensive industries, that if you're manufacturing your steel and using an insane amount of energy as an input, then uh, if you're paying for the carbon output of that, it's it's economic disadvantage yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Although, you know, the OECD recently came out with a paper essentially saying that not putting a carbon price on was a form of subsidy. So I think you may start seeing that argument start taking place at the international level yeah. that, that you really, in order to be part of the international system, you'll have to put a price on carbon. Yeah. It's very interesting how the conversation has evolved even just in the past five years from uh, even back to the when Stéphane Dion was campaigning to be the Prime Minister of Canada and had very sort of flushed out concepts around carbon taxation and, and environmental policy and, and it became a total uh, non-issue in, in the eyes of voters from one that now it's the concept of not having carbon pricing as seen as a subsidy. is It's a very interesting change in a very short period of time. Yeah, I think things have changed in the last five or six years. I think uh, really there was a shift in 2008, 2009 with the global recession and uh, 
progress on uh, carbon policy and climate uh, went, took a took a bit of a backseat uh, during the global financial downturn. But I think mm-hmm. now that you know, we're coming out of it, although with difficulties in places like Greece and China, but uh, it, this is now back on the international agenda and on the domestic agenda in Canada and the U.S. Yeah. Um, and so, as a as an organization that's advocating for for a specific approach to climate change and, and pollution, uh, how do you guys affect change? What is what is it that you have found have, has been a successful model for Canadians for Clean Prosperity to try to influence the outcomes that that are of importance to your organization? Well, I think it takes place at multiple levels. I think we're we're trying to build. Uh, grassroots support for uh, these kinds of activities, and we have uh, you know fairly active social media presence. We're trying to build uh, lists of supporters across the country uh, to put pressure on their political leaders. But we're also dealing directly with decision makers, and mm-hmm. we think, uh, you know, as you said, this is something that can reach out across the board to both the more conservative leaning and more liberal or left leaning parties, uh, and, and so we're really trying to engage with all the political parties on, in, in a dialogue and not not just focusing on one side or the other. Yeah. It's amazing when you can come up with those concepts that really do appeal across. Uh, we've referenced it before on the show, but even some of the examples in some of the, the hardcore red states in the U.S. where some of the biggest supporters of decentralized energy have been the Tea Party, where mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of tapped into a concept of energy independence and, and energy freedom. And so uh, it's very interesting, this concept that uh, you have what is sort of the traditionally the left side of the spectrum that has been very focused on sort of combating climate change and the right is sort of focused on a lack of interference of government. And so that concept of a revenue neutral carbon pricing is is something that really does appeal across yeah. the, the, the spectrum. So, um, and so, so what's next? What, uh, what are you guys working towards? What are the big events that are coming up on your agenda or sort of what are the big sure. milestones that you're trying to reach? Well, there's a number of things going on on the political agenda in Canada. We have both Alberta and Ontario in the middle of consultations on bringing in their own carbon pricing system. So we're active in both those provinces. We want to be engaged in the public consultations in Alberta and in Ontario and try to get it to, as close to the BC-style revenue, revenue neutral carbon tax as is possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, other jurisdictions, Manitoba, Nova Scotia, are looking at systems as well. BC is looking at changing or improving their system. So you know, we'll be active in that debate across the country. And really, all of those are leading up to the COP21 conference in Paris. And most provinces want to have some new policy measures announced in time for Paris. There's obviously a federal election coming up as well. We'll probably talk about the border measures and competitiveness issues in the federal context. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're involved in some other issues to do with municipal waste in the province of Ontario. And re- we see the, this concept of pollution pricing and revenue neutral fees uh, as something that can be applied in a variety of debates. So, And, and maybe enlighten us just a little bit on that, because uh, for, for us, we constantly talk about climate change and energy access are sort of the two dominant uh, issues that we tackle as student energy, but there's there's a whole plethora of other sure. sort of environmental and social issues that that are potentially loosely related to the energy sector. So, uh, outside of the carbon equation, what are the other the projects or what are the other sort of angles that you guys are advocating around? Yeah, and there's there's a whole variety of issues where the same principles basically apply. I mean, water water pricing is certainly is certainly one of them. Uh, there there's very strong evidence that jurisdictions that have a free or almost free uh, water price 
water use goes off the charts, and if you start increasing the price, then then usage goes down, and people are, are more responsible in their use of water. Uh, there's you know, the debate around road pricing. We certainly saw in, in London that uh, they were able to essentially get cars off the street in central London by bringing in road pricing. So there's a, there's a number of other areas where these same principles apply. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Ecofiscal Commission is is obviously working on, on some of these areas as well, um, but, but we're uh, interested in you know, not simply uh, talking about the, the policy concepts and public information, but also advocacy and trying to actually implement some of these in, in law. Yeah, great. And so you mentioned that you're building some grassroots support across Canada. If these messages of using sort of market factors and, and tr- traditional business approaches to tackle climate change and pollution resonates with any of our listeners, what's the what's the best place that people can go to if they want to learn more or lend their support? Yeah, at cleanprosperity.ca is our website. Uh, so please go there and and sign up. Uh, we're we're looking for supporters across the country. So we, uh, please take a look at our, our site and check us out. Yeah, absolutely. And we appreciate you coming on and sharing your guys' unique perspective on on climate change and pollution and the approach to how we tackle that. So uh, I'd love to have you back on a future show to sort of debate some of the different perspectives on on how we price and, and what we should do with those funds and, and how that affects the economy or doesn't affect the economy. Great. Thank you very much, Sean. Take care. For our next segment on Energy Voices, we're going to continue the conversation of how we price carbon and through what mechanisms do we enact a real impact on climate change. This segment's going to be about uh, a, a policy idea or a concept called the cap and dividend. And and it's something that hasn't gotten as much press or as much sort of traction as the traditional carbon tax or a traditional carbon trade. So we're going to have George Miller on the show. And George is a director of the West Wind Foundation, who also does business development for Blue Wave Capital. So first off, I want to welcome you to the show, George. Thanks, Sean. Happy to be here and happy to be chatting with you about it. So, so maybe to, to set some context for us, um, what is a cap and dividend system? Uh, as I said just, uh, just earlier there, we, get, we hear a ton about carbon taxes. We hear a ton about cap and trade systems. Uh, what is a cap and dividend system for someone who, who's never heard of that term before? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, while it's uh, you know, a, a bit to explain, it's actually quite theoretically simple. A, a cap and dividend system is based on the idea that we all own the sky equally and, uh, and that in order to pollute the sky by you know, putting carbon in there, you should pay us all uh, and pay us all equally through a dividend. So, uh, so it takes the concept of you know, a very revenue-neutral um, uh, program and takes all the, the proceeds that come from a price on carbon and it returns those to the general population basically anyone with a social security number, and an equal dividend. Uh, it works a lot like the, the Alaskan fund, oil fund does, um, just sending a check in the mail every year. Uh, and the, the other component that, that is, you know, a really theoretically, economically nice uh, part of this is the cap. Um, you know, cap is a, a very market-driven uh, way to price carbon because scientists generally know that if we, you know, put this much carbon into the atmosphere, we should be getting generally this much warming on the planet, and, uh, and that causes this much catastrophe for us. And uh, 
And so the ability to actually decide how much carbon is, is what we're really looking for. And, and this allows the, the market to set the price it's, um, for, for what that, that price on carbon is. So, um, you know, on those two different fronts of it, it's, it's meant to be the cleanest way to, to put this, uh, this cap on, on carbon and to, uh, to, you know, pay everyone and, and have it come out the most equitably possible. And, and how, and, and under that system, is, is the cap, uh, for under the models for a cap and dividend system, would the cap traditionally be set at uh, sort of meeting the 450 ppm target or sort of the two degrees Celsius target? Um, or, or sort of how is that cap determined? Um, or, or if you were the one determining it, how would you set that cap? Uh, so I think, you know, that's, that's going to be decided on every, every local level and, and through, you know, climate negotiations of, of what actual, you know, carbon, carbon output we want to, to put in there. Um, I, you know, the, the key piece that is very native to the cap and dividend policy is that, you know, it, it goes down over time. Uh, and, uh, and so we, you know, as a, as a um, country make the decision or as, as policymakers make the decision of, of how much we want to, to put out there. And I, I think, in my mind, it, it should be the, the idea is to get started quickly uh, and and to make you know aggressive goals on, on what we want to do. Um, and you know if that allows for you know the current you know a, you know a smaller reduction up front, um, that kind of shows people a aggressive uh, aggressive path to the future. I think that's that's really what we're looking for. So that. Um, you know, the, the key piece in anything energy and anything, uh, you know, large scale is to, to give the market signals uh, so that they know what's coming in the future and how to prepare for it. And uh, so I, I think, you know, I, I, I to, to quote all of my Republican friends out there, I'm not a scientist. Uh, and uh, so I, I can't say exactly what the numbers on, on carbon I'd, I'd like to have out uh, would be. Uh, but I... I Certainly love to be engaged in that discussion to, uh, to you know figure that one out. Yeah, and and to explain a bit of the nuance to some of our listeners, um, the the whole concept of the 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 market dynamics that George is talking about is that fact that if if you're freely trading, if you're capping the total carbon emissions. Um, and people have sort of their allotment of, of carbon offsets or you're generating carbon offsets that, and the market prices those. So that's saying that if there, if technology develops that makes it really, really easy to uh, reduce our carbon impact and you're sort of trading that carbon offset um, and there's an abundance of assets, then the price of carbon is quite low. If we're finding it really difficult to meet that cap, and and to George's point, if that if the cap on carbon emissions is is slowly going down, um, it can become more and more expensive, which makes it more and more viable for people to spin up new sort of carbon offsetting. Uh, uh, challenges. So it really is that idea of using free market dynamics um, to find the most efficient solution to uh, the the climate change and, and carbon um, challenges that we face. Thank you, Sean. That's a great explanation. And I did neglect to explain that point. That's- yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah, and and it's interesting because um, just the the previous segment to you with with Mark Cameron from Clean Prosperity Canada, he he was advocating a revenue neutral um, 
a similar revenue neutral approach to carbon but in the approach of taxation. So setting a specific price on carbon, so for example, $30 a ton, uh, and then returning that again to taxpayers via reduced income tax. So it, it's similar, but there's there's very profound differences um, when you get down to the minutia there. And so what about that model of sort of setting a flat fee uh, and returning that via income tax? What about that model doesn't appeal to you and, and what sort of steers you in the direction of a, a cap and dividend versus uh, a sort of flat levy or flat tax and returning that via income tax? Yeah, uh, so I think that's you know honorable and definitely uh, in the in the right direction. Uh, the challenge with that kind of a, a a model is it really puts the impetus on policymakers to decide what is the price of carbon that we should set. And you know if you're looking to to make this more about you know revenue that that comes in, then that might be an easier way to to set the amount of revenue that you come in you, you bring in from that tax. Uh, but it really becomes a you know a tricky game to to figure out how do we actually get to the amount of emissions that will will hold us to our goals, whether that's two degrees Celsius in rise or or less than that, hopefully. Uh, and and so it, it it you know if there are uh, if it proves to be really challenging to to switch over to carbon, uh, then then you know it, it people will still pay it and they'll over pollute and will we won't be meeting our goals. So. On, on that front of it, I, I just find it's a little bit cleaner. It makes it easier, uh, and, uh, you know, you can leave it to the scientists and, and, you know, leave the economists that operate on a lot of assumptions. Uh, I'm an economist by training. Uh, they, they, we can, you know, ease off. Uh, so but to that point, I think just makes it cleaner. Uh, to the income tax bit, um, I think it's, you know, great to keep it revenue neutral. It makes it... Uh, you know, much more appreciated and, and it's more equitable. Um, I, in my mind, having a specific dividend where when people receive it and they, they say, what is this from? Oh, it's from this this carbon policy. That makes it more sustainable. It, it makes it more important in their mind. I get this money from this. Uh, whereas if you're applying it to their tax bill, you know, maybe it, it, it gets lost in the wash. It's, it's That's more of a marketing side of things. You know, it just... It makes sense, you know, when people are, are getting a revenue stream and they, you know, there's a lot of loss aversion in, in us humans. And uh, and so the more that we can identify that this is, you know, what we're getting and this is why we're getting it and we deserve it, uh, then, you know, it makes it harder for, for future policymakers to, to repeal that sort of thing or pull it back. And uh, it's, it's, it's just a bit more, um, um, you know, uh, held on to by, by the general population. Yeah, and and I the part that I think is a really interesting argument. You said this sort of right at the start of our interview around the fact that everyone owns the sky, and and it's it's a conversation that we rarely have that discussion around the the global commons or the national commons. Who owns the the oceans? Who owns the air? Who owns trees? Who owns riverways? Um, and often that's that's broken up along sort of national borders. But um, when you when you talk about things like the global commons. 
uh, as far as who owns the atmosphere and the air that we all breathe, uh, it, it becomes a really tricky conversation. And I think sort of a, a subtle benefit of this approach and this model is it really forces people to, to, to realize that the air that we all breathe um, is, is indirectly owned by each and every one of us. And, and this is a way to sort of build a sense of ownership around that that I, that I don't think a lot of other models that have been proposed would do. Yeah, I think that that is important, uh, and it it really does become a uh, you know a collaborate a global collaboration. Uh, and I think that's one of the tricky pieces, which you know the the capping dividend policy that I've seen does a really nice job of trying to, to equalize that to work with you know some of the trade issues that might might arise. Um, being able to basically put a price on any carbon um, that that is uh, you know involved uh, in in the markets and. Uh, so it helps to equalize it and reduce the uh, any issues that might arise around competition. Uh, and uh, but I think it is you know really effective. Yeah, and and uh, to, well, sorry, go ahead, George. To, to that to that point, I, uh, I wanted to mention the one that I really have in mind is a, a bill that has been put forth by Rep- Representative Chris Van Hollen. Um, and you know, having read through that, it seems like it really is is thoughtful in how it addresses all of those those pieces that. That's on, uh, you know, very well explained as on a website, climateandprosperity.org, if anyone's interested. Perfect. Yeah, and, and the thing that I love about this approach is that uh, there's so many nuances and differences in every region and every energy jurisdiction. We sort of routinely say at Student Energy that if you get the same answer in India as you got in Canada, you probably did something wrong. And and I think that this this sort of policy option is is something that would be really appealing to folks who um, don't want to have big government. They don't want to have a lot of intervention. To your point about uh, a, a sort of a traditional carbon tax situation requires policymakers to sort of finger in the wind, pick the right price on carbon. Um, and so I think it's important for our listeners to understand that these sorts of policy options, maybe they don't work in certain jurisdictions, but they, they can work really well in jurisdictions where that concept of letting market dynamics play, uh, allowing people to sort of achieve a tangible benefit themselves and, and really removing the role of government in, um, in tackling climate change and in tackling carbon. So just wanted to sort of address that again for our listeners that um, these, these sorts of solutions and, and these solutions that, that aren't sort of dominant in the mainstream conversation can be really effective in certain, certain areas. Yeah, it's a really, really good point. The amount that you can accomplish the role of government of essentially you know, identifying this cost and, and making it, you know, involved in the market decisions is important. Uh, and the, the most, you know, the more that you can reduce the responsibilities of government is, is really is great within this. Uh, so it doesn't make a huge task and, you know, put a lot of, a lot of different fingers on, on decisions. It, you know, makes clear what should happen and then allows competition to, to do the rest. And, and are you finding that, that, there's been success and pickup in the the sort of Republican Tea Party right wing U.S. Uh, markets for these sorts of solutions. That's a great question. Um, I I think you know there at this point most um, real progress has been made on state levels, uh, and if I remember correctly, Oregon has done a really nice job of of pushing forward um, carbon policy. And I think that they've gotten some bipartisan 
uh, buy-in in that area to, to really push this, this forward. I think it makes a lot of sense uh, to, to do that, uh, to really push through like a, a Tea Party uh, organization. I mean, from a solar perspective, we've seen a lot of, uh, a lot of Republicans and, and you know, small government uh, enthusiasts start to push towards distributed generation because it's more competitive than the, the general utility model. And I think, um, you know, the, the ability to, um, you know, really embrace that part of this um, so that you don't need to be a diehard environmentalist to realize that this is, uh, you know, this is the right thing to do. Uh, I think that's, that's certainly a place where we want to be pushing uh, some of the campaigning of this yeah. uh, and really getting, you know, minds that are, you know, potentially have, uh, you know, a different, still a different philosophical uh, grounding uh, to realize that, you know, it, we we are fighting for, uh, you know, we, our, our our battles are, are in line. Uh, and so, uh, so I think that's a, a great point, John, that, that should be highlighted um, going forward. And, and so for people that uh, are hearing this policy perspective and, and sort of option for maybe the first time, what's next for you? So how can people get involved? What are the goals? What are you trying to influence? What's the way that people can learn more and, and take a bit of action? So at this point, I think the, uh, the clearest um, information online is at climateandprosperity.org. Uh, and there, they're, they're really, you know, pushing a bill that I think has a lot of potential uh, and it would be great to have more support of that, uh, more sharing that of that around. Um, there's a lot of organizations that are, are you know, looking to get engaged. Uh, I've seen that the, the Citizens Climate Lobby has uh, several different, uh, you know, uh, climate carbon carbon policies that are along these lines uh, that they're, they're pushing forward and, and really, you know, was... Um, you know, critical in the previous push for, for carbon policy. Uh, and uh, you know, 350.org is another organization that I, I really think is doing great work and, and hope to work with. Uh, and uh, so I think at this point, um, you know, become aware um, of, of what issues are going on, what the differences are, um, and, you know, certainly reaching out to your representatives uh, to, to identify uh, that this is something that, that means something to you. Um, that's, that's another big, big step. And, uh, I, I envision us, um, you know, really igniting a, a global campaign and, and, you know, putting, um, you know, marketing dollars forward. Um, I see, you know, potential to, to, you know, have, um, contributions to that, to, you know, put forth really effective, um, you know, animated media that can really, you know, take our country by storm and, and as well as other countries. Uh, so I think, you know, um, I, at this point, I'd say I'd re- direct people to those resources. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you put up uh, put up contact information, but I'd certainly be happy to, to connect with people and, and discuss, um, you know, the, uh, the, the ground level, what's going on and, and, and where, we're, where we're heading with this. Yeah. Uh, but at this point, I think, you know, uh, we're, we're certainly also looking towards 2016 elections, and we'd really like to get some candidates on the, on the bill that will, uh, will push this because it, it's a powerful message to uh, the general population. And so the more that people can identify it as something they're looking for, the more the candidates will, will realize that's, uh, that's, that's what sells. 
Perfect. Well, we're we're very happy to have you on the show to to sort of again illustrate this policy perspective and, and this approach to 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 meeting our climate change uh, sort of objectives through a, a new and and sort of non traditional but really interesting way. So, thanks for taking the time to share that with us today, George. Absolutely, Sean. Okay. Uh, no problem at all. Awesome. Okay. Well, take care, and we'll be in touch soon. Next up on Energy Voices, I'm excited to welcome Hans Asfeld and Rajnan Rasnavalu, who are two students that have been working on the Alberta Voices project. So welcome to the show, guys. Thanks so much. Great to be here. So f- first off, I love the name. Obviously, Energy Voices, we have a, a big affinity to anything that names themselves Voices. Um, so, so give us the overview. What is Alberta Voices to someone who's never heard of the project before? Alberta Voices primarily is an online documentary database of stories of Albertans who live on the land and have lived near uh, resource development and specifically oil and gas development. Uh, Alberta Voices emerged from a conference that we hosted in 2012 at the Augustana campus of the U of A in Camrose, Alberta. It was a conference where we invited Perspectives of all kinds, industry spoke, landowners spoke, First Nations spoke, government spoke, etc. And the idea was to create a table where everyone's voice was welcome. And from that, to move forward with a meaningful conversation about how to best undertake oil and gas development in this province. Mm-hmm. And Alberta Voices was a, an effort to do the same thing in the public sphere, outside of the conference and in its wake. And so... Uh, in a, a public discourse that didn't always make space for, for all of those voices, we, we sought to create a platform for those voices that had been marginalized. And myself and Allison Bordelon, another student, we spent the summer uh, building relationships, largely with landowners, and filming their stories. Perfect. And, and, and Rajan, what attracted you to the project? What, what made you get involved in this project? Um, well, I, I guess I got interested in fracking um, during a visit to some friends in upstate New York. And uh, <clears throat> as you know, it was heavily debated. And uh, I saw the impacts of what fracking was doing in other parts of the country and uh, I guess became concerned at how it was rolling out and how the debate was so, I guess, polarized and when I came back to Alberta, it seemed that our own capacity to engage the subject in a way that wasn't either demonizing on the one hand or, um, you know, casting aspersions left, right, center. So I guess the primary interest was in trying to help facilitate a better way of talking about the issue. And that's uh, what had us start the conference. Mm-hmm. We thought, you know, there's, if we put our best smarts together, we can tackle this issue in a way that's not occurring at the moment. Mm-hmm. So that was the uh, main impetus for the conference and the subsequent uh, Alberta Voices project. Mm-hmm. And, and what have you guys found in, in, in going out and in talking to Albertans about resource development and about fracking? Uh, what, what are the stories that you're hearing? What are the comments that you're hearing? Sort of share, share with us the highlights of, of what you guys have been working on and what you've been hearing. 
Well, the films on Alberta Voices, as we'd mentioned, are largely of landowners and First Nations. Um, but the conversations we've had over the last three or four years have been with people from all walks of life. And what's most striking is, despite a very polarized debate, uh, for the most part, people, whether in the industry or outside the industry, really have quite common interests in making our province the best it can be. Um, in developing a sustainable economy and so on. And so what's come forward from, from those conversations is that we can, we can move forward together if we find the right ways of, of talking about some contentious, sensitive issues. And those are sensitive in many different ways, particularly in all sides, but in these conversations with landowners, um, they, they've been sensitive in the sense that their livelihoods have have often been turned upside down. Um, while there's a contested debate about um, what kinds of impacts oil and gas activity is causing, um, these are landowners who have experienced um, dramatic changes to their landscape, um, whether those are caused by oil and gas or not. In some of those cases, there's scientific evidence to show that um, methane is in their water because of the activity near their property. In other cases, it's uh, anecdotal evidence where um, oil and gas activity begins and water changes very soon after. Um, it's often also uh, concerns about air emissions with flaring. And again, whether these are, are strictly caused by oil and gas activity or not, um, these are dramatic changes that can be observed and are being experienced in very, um, often very tragic ways by those living on the land, whether it's hair loss or the loss of livestock, um, whether they're experiencing earthquakes that damage their the structures on their property. Um, but it's also observable in, in more uh, subtle ways and particularly in the nature of community. And many people, whether supportive or against activity in, in the region um, feel that it's very difficult to talk about these things. Uh, landowners who are impacted might feel that they've been silenced as when it comes to raising their concerns and, and others who want to support activity may feel that they can't do so without um, receiving the attacks of groups in the area that are against it. Mm-hmm. And, and- I, th- I think one of the things that's really fascinating about the work that you guys are doing is that it's exploring this topic at a time in which uh, very little is actually known. The, there's not a, a hundred-year history of fracking. There's not uh, deep longitudinal studies that understand the sort of pros and cons and environmental impacts. And so getting those sort of anecdotal stories um, and that oral history sort of as it's happening in real time, I think is such a powerful uh, tool to, to, to enable this conversation and to drive this conversation forward a little bit. Um, when you bring up the, the, the issues around community, um, have there been any any examples in which a community that you guys have been talking to or working in has found a solution to some of these problems? Is there has is there any anyone out there that's been able to sort of harness this dialogue uh, and really bring their community together? Well, um, I'm not sure actually. Um, perhaps in the states that have 
expand fracking, there's been a collective community consensus that's been able to steer the conversation in a particular way. Um, I'm not sure if that's exactly a conversation, but um, I think kind of echoing what Hans just said, I think one of the key experiences that we've observed is how divided along various, quote, cultural lines the discourse is. Mm -hmm. So generally you have industry having a particular narrative about what's occurring that's very, very different than what the scientific community uh, understands about the issue, uh, which is um, not connected at all to public policy, certain forms of public policy. Um, So I think part of our hope from the Alberta Voices Project is to start breaking down these barriers and uh, seeing what might happen if we can have ongoing discourse across traditional divides. Mm-hmm. And what would your guys' goal be out of the Alberta Voices Project? So you, you've put in several years of work so far from your sort of first conference to today. Um, maybe give us a sense of, of what's next or, or what the objectives of the project are. I think the, the project has had impact on several levels, um, whether it's uh, you measure that in terms of readership, in terms of uh, attention given to regulation by the regulators. Um, in particular, what's been significant, though, it goes very much unnoticed. And that is simply the uh, the value that lies in, in the fact that we've been out listening to people who really have not been listened to for the most part. They've in most cases, been very trusting of the, the given operator on their land, and when a problem has arisen, they've first gone to the operators to bring it to their attention and been very surprised to find out that nothing was going to be done about it. Um, they would then go to the regulator, who would send them to Alberta Environment, etc., and and very much um, not... Well, they would be unsuccessful in finding someone who would listen to their concerns uh, and investigate them. And so as yet another party coming along, um, it's been, it's taken a lot of energy and time on, and patience on our part to um, to demonstrate that we can be trusted and that we indeed are here to, to listen to their story, um, not to judge it, not to label landowners in one way or another, but simply to, to hear about their experience and, and then to share that same story with, with the public. And so I think um, virtually everyone who worked with has really appreciated uh, the opportunity to be listened to. And in many cases, it's been, I think, a healing opportunity for them, actually, in which they've been able to um, walk themselves through uh, their experiences that have been ridden with with struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, other objectives, Raj? Um, Well, I think one thing that we're interested in is, I guess, the ability for us as a society to engage in the tough conversations and to do it in a way that was honest. Um, I think what we've discovered is that there's a lot of wisdom that remains untapped, be that uh, the capacity of strong peer-reviewed science to analyze a given... uh, area of industry or um, the 
profound experiences of landowners who've lived on a property for many years and experienced firsthand the changes in air and water. And I guess we kind of feel that as a society, we have the capacity to engage in these honest, tough conversations and then, I guess, respond to the implications of what we know. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, I don't think we have a particular agenda as long as we can be open and honest about what's going on mm-hmm. um, and respond in thoughtful ways that um, take into account various perspectives. I think we can take good steps. Mm-hmm. I really like your comment around sort of wanting to engage the difficult conversations Um one of the things that I often find in, in the energy system is that, uh, be it on conversations like fracking or on pipelines or on development, uh, it's a conversation that's that's full of hyperbole, and and oftentimes it's it's billed as a, a debate of uh, unbridled uh, economic success versus total environmental Armageddon. And, and I find that usually neither of those things are true about any particular project or any particular activity. Uh, and, and the truth really usually is somewhere in the middle. Um, and I think it's activities like these that are, that are really going to help the average person get a sense and an understanding of, of the, the color of any conversation because nothing is black and white. There's not, there's not a single idea that is black and white where it's, it's either good or it's bad. There's, there's multi-dimensions to every one of these topics. So uh, I really respect the work that you guys are doing to, to make those sorts of voices um, heard both in, in, in Alberta and around the world for people that are interested in learning about um, the sort of tangible reality of, of what it's like to, to go through um, and experience fossil fuel development on your own land and, and land that might have been in your family for generations. It's, it's a very sensitive subject and it seems like you guys are approaching it in a really sensitive way. Thank you. Yeah and so I want to uh, before I let you guys go, I want to just uh, take a, a bit of a opportunity to tell your guys' case study, not specifically about Alberta Voices, um, but more what it was like to start uh, a project like this uh, while you're in school. So b- oftentimes people, they, they sort of pay attention to a project when the website is up and there's 10 videos and there's all this dialogue and communication going on. But uh, as everyone in the Student Energy Network knows, there's usually sort of a, a multi-year process before that when it goes from, from idea to sort of concept. And so since we have you guys on the show, I wanted to, to share our listeners um, a bit of a sense of what it took for you guys to get this project off the ground. So uh, maybe Hans, will start with you. Can you give us, give us that background of, of when this idea first happened and, and what were some of the steps that it took for you to, to make this thing a reality? I think the, the first thing worth mentioning uh, is the fact that Raj and I found a very, very supportive professor, uh, Dr. Ditmar Mundell at Augustana, who was not only supportive, but who went out of his way to create the opportunities that were necessary to move forward with an initiative like this. And going back to the conference that we'd mentioned in 2012, that was actually organized by Raj and I and six other undergraduate students, and we spent the semester with uh, Dr. Mundell researching hydraulic fracturing from various disciplines. We were all in different programs. We came together each week to discuss our research and alongside that, organizing the conference. And it was really through those uh, conversations that um, 
think both Raj and I found ourselves uh, learning not only in the classroom, but uh, situated immediately in the local context and meaningful, relevant issues that we felt we could contribute to. And the conference in Alberta Voices turned out to be a testament to that. And it all really began with uh, the, the support of Dr. Mundell. And, and what roadblocks have you guys had along the way? Um, obviously, it takes uh, time, energy, attention, funding to get something like this off the ground. So what have been some of the challenges you guys have had to overcome? I think one of the key challenges for us has been uh, finding funding. Um, we <clears throat> applied for a number of years for different grants. Um, but uh, I think in the end, the feedback was that we were at least the project sounded too activist. And um, I guess for us, we were very, um, I guess, surprised by that response. I mean, we felt that what made the project meaningful and <clears throat> engaging was the fact that we were doing something real and that um, had some impact in the wider community. And if that's activism, well, then academics and us as undergraduate students, we'd be all for it. But So we ended up actually having to fundraise uh, basically through community donations. Um, so I'd say that and the university's reluctance um, and wariness, and perhaps for good reasons, to engage in controversial topics that may, um, may affect some of the donor streams that uh, fund the university. So I think dancing around um, the sensitivity of the topic and finding solid donations and solid funding was uh, one of our key challenges, apart from the ones that Hans mentioned previously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, that's a, a subject that we can sort of really, really relate to. As an organization, we, we don't take policy positions. We're, we're never for or against any technology or, or opportunity. And and people tend to put money towards people that are supporting their viewpoint. And and if you come out and say, I want to have a nuanced conversation that shows the pros and cons, that's not that tends to not be the thing that gets the most funding in the world. So um, I can definitely respect the fact that there's there's a, a struggle and a challenge there to get the, the funding together. Um, any anything else that uh, you think that students should be aware of? If if you were if you were talking to yourselves in in 2012 and could give yourselves advice on starting this whole project, what would you tell yourselves? Uh, well, I guess two things. One is to follow in what um, the funding challenge is that there are lots of people who really were willing to support our project. Uh, we just had to look outside the conventional stream. So we've received a lot of support from the Ronning Center, which is an institute based uh, at the Augustana campus, um, and also through private donations. Um, and then I guess following on that is that students have a lot of power um, to create a lot of change, to engage in issues, and actually uh, have some influence in how debates are shaped and um I guess I'd say that if you have a passion and you have an interest, go for it. Uh, the doors will open. Yeah, that's awesome. And and for before we wrap this up, for anyone that wants to know more and to pay attention to the project, uh, what's what's the website and where can people find out more information? The 
website is albertavoices.ca. That's our the project we've been discussing over the last little bit here. We're also beginning a, a new project called Alberta Fracking. It's currently under development. There will also be a website in the near future. And this is really an attempt to uh, replicate what we did with Dr. Mundell in that initial uh, course in 2012 and provide similar opportunities to students across the province. Uh, both Raj and I have finished her studies, and although we did uh, encounter challenges when it came to funding, we've been successful this last time around. Uh, the University of Alberta's Undergraduate Research Initiative has provided some grant funding to develop a program that will uh, help other undergraduate students also do research on the topic. And so we'll be leading this Alberta fracking program through seminars and an annual conference beginning this coming year, beginning this fall actually, and any students who are interested in participating and engaging directly with stakeholders and doing interview-based research and collaborating alongside policy developers and basically contributing, participating in an ongoing conversation about, about oil and gas in Alberta, um, they should absolutely get in touch with us. And uh, whether or not they have professor support, um, there are different ways that we can uh, arrange opportunities for us to work together. And, and we really are excited to work with anyone and everyone from any program and any institution in Alberta. And and you, you said the website is coming for that, but if people reach out on the existing Alberta Voices site, that, that all, all that contact information goes to you guys, correct? That's right. Perfect. Okay. Well, that's it for our time here today, guys. Uh, again, I just wanted to commend you on the work you're doing to, to add more nuanced conversation into the dialogue around energy. And, and I wish you guys best of luck on your project. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. I'm going to jump in here quick, and we're actually going to cut to a short clip that I've taken from one of the interviews that is part of the Alberta Voices documentary. Um, we've got a gentleman who's worked in the oil and gas industry around Slave Lake and, and is talking about some of the environmental cleanup efforts or sort of the lack of efforts uh, that he's seen. So this is the sneak peek at the Alberta Voices documentary series. Cheers. My name is Daryl David Loy. I've uh, worked in the oil industry all of my life. I started when I was 15 years old and I've been involved with the oil industry ever since. Um, my family's been involved with the oil industry all their life. Slave Lake, uh, from the time I was about eight years old, started into oil booms and it's been basically booming around here ever since. I've probably helped set up 1,000, 2,000 different leases and worked on a thousand or two thousand different leases and wells and I've only worked on cleaning three that we've reclaimed. Right to where there was, right back to where it, uh, we took out all the pipe, took out all of the tanks, took out all the contaminated soil, brought new topsoil in and seeded it. Only three.
That brings to a close another month's episode of Energy Voices. I'm going to again remind all of our listeners to go to studentenergy.org to explore our brand new energy literacy platform. Our interactive systems map allows you to visualize the energy system. You can click on any individual component of the energy system and see how it links all the way back to the baseline resource and all the way down to the end energy use. Please visit studentenergy.org for more information. Energy Voices is produced by Sean Collins and Kai Sinclair with production assistance from Chris Changyan Phillips. Previous episodes are online at bit.ly slash energyvoices and in iTunes or your favorite podcast service simply by searching Energy Voices. Energy Voices.